Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we had the immense pleasure of hosting Mark Shepard on the show. For those that don't know Mark, he is the CEO of Forest Agriculture Enterprises, the founder of Restoration Agriculture Development, and the author of Restoration Agriculture, as well as Water for Any Farm. He is also the founder and farmer of New Forest Farm, a 106-acre perennial agricultural savannah. In this interview, we're going to talk a lot about Mark's radically different approach to farming, one which is based on deep biomimicry, based in the context of his farm in Wisconsin, USA, which is, as I said, New Forest Farm. So I, we, we had a fascinating talk here, um, um, delving into subjects that we don't usually go delve into into the show. So I really, really hope you enjoy it. And don't hesitate if you would like to complement some of the things we discussed with some visual representations. Mark has lots of content online. Please check it out. and Maybe it gives you a bit of a, of a more tangible idea of what we discussed today. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Mark, and welcome on the podcast. Greetings, Dimitri. So we usually start with our guests in um, by explaining a bit of your story and you know how you got to where you are now um, in in your in your path of of agriculture and agroforestry. <laughs> you got thirty years. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> I, I suppose it kind of all started uh, right around the the early nineteen seventies. I grew up in uh, what became an industrial wasteland. It was all mostly uh, manufacturing, both light and heavy manufacturing. And it was when the U.S. Uh, adopted tax policies to deliberately encourage companies to leave the U.S. and set up camp in other countries around the world because it was, you know, lower cost and good for the economy and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, the manufacturing sector collapsed. You know, my dad went from having one good manufacturing job to having like four jobs that sucked and not, you know, being enough. We uh, ended up having a really large garden in order to supposedly feed ourselves. And yet we had to constantly go to the store to buy food. It's like, why was it that we had like a acre garden and we couldn't even feed ourselves? We had to buy our staple foods, our, you know, meat and bread and milk and that sort of thing. Uh, it also coincided with the, uh, with the uh, oil embargo when uh, crude supplies to the U.S. were cut off by the OPEC nations and there were gas lines miles and miles long. And um, I decided that um, I didn't want to live that way. I wanted to escape somehow. And, um, you know, because I had the experience gardening, my dad went to a lot of gardening group groups. We um, hung out with a lot of the people who were like some of the pioneers in the organic movement, um, you know, like <clears throat> prior to the current or the most recent flourishing of organic when my, when I first remember my dad going to organic growers meetings, there was a different name over the door of the library of where we were supposed to go meeting. I said, but dad, I was like, you know, eight or 10 or whatever, you know, aren't we supposed to go to the, 
he puts his hand over my mouth because back then, if you said the word organic, you could get arrested for being a socialist and lose your job. Um, and then, boy, how things have changed, you know. Um, then, so it was uh, like Heinz Grotsky was a greenhouse grower. John and Helen Philbrick ran the uh, uh, the Biodynamic Association near us, and they were they were big, you know, mentors uh, of my dad's. Um, uh, Robert Rodale. Uh, my dad knew Robert Rodale. We went to meetings with them. Uh, Scott and Helen Nearing, you know, homesteaders extraordinaire that wrote all kinds of books about homesteading. So those are some of my early, early influences. And then I just naturally gravitated toward that when I finally managed to escape um, the industrial wasteland. And uh, part of my whole perspective on on the, the agroforestry take is that uh, – there's a you know somewhat of a myth out there that there's all these young people that want to get into farming. Um, that's not true for one, but for two is if you get into farming for the cash flows from farming, you'll probably fail. If you get into farming as a way to manage your real estate asset of which you are an investor, that's a different story. And so in order for me to escape, uh, you know, the industrial suburbs, um, I started taking a bunch of get rich quick real estate seminars and um, became a real estate finder for somebody where I would find a, a, a property, get an accepted offer and then hand it over to them. And I just get a check for finding them a piece of property that they would, they, they would take over. So I learned about how to purchase real estate um, when I was still like 17 or 18, maybe at the earliest. Uh, it was about that time that um, J. Russell Smith's book, Tree Crops, was reissued um, and with the introduction by Wendell Berry, who was also one of my big inspirations back then. And it just it just dawned on me. Here I'd been you know, living at home with my parents. We had one of the biggest gardens of anybody I knew, and it still didn't produce all of our food. And anybody who's ever had a garden knows that you got to go out, you either till the soil or mulch it deeply. And there was this lady who lived up the road from us called Ruth Stout. She started, you know, writing all these books about, you know, deep mulch and stuff like that. Even that was a ridiculous amount of work. Tilling the ground was a lot of work. Gathering mulch was a lot of work. Uh, and your, your garden has to be out in the full sun. So it's hot, then you sweat and you're trying to hoe weeds and all this kind of stuff and getting covered with dirt and mud that's running down you. There's pests and diseases to deal with. It was just a real lot of work for like a bunch of carrots that you throw in the soup. It doesn't really feed the family. And so <clears throat> whenever I'd be done with my responsibilities as a kid, I'd, I'd go run off into the woods and, you know, just explore and play. And um, there, were, there were hazelnuts, and chest, not chestnuts, but uh, hickory nuts and grapes and blueberries and, you know, wintergreen berries and all kinds of stuff out in the woods to eat for free. And nobody took care of it at all. And I was sitting on the edge of the, the woods where um, I was the primary forest manager. You know, by the time I was a teenager, the oil embargo kind of stimulated my parents to get a wood stove. So he started burning uh, wood as a, as a supplemental heat for the house. <clears throat> I was sitting on a rock reading Tree Crops by J. Russell Smith. And he's talking about planting trees to produce seed for livestock feed. And then we would grow our own human food underneath in this two-story agriculture. And I could easily see it. There's the garden right over there out in the open. And here's the forest over here. Why not 
reach over here, grab the garden, pull it in under the forest, and let's reach over there and grab the forest and put it on top of the garden. We now have twice as much going on over all of our land base instead of this is here and that's here and this is here and that's here. And that kind of, it just dawned on me that, oh my gosh, this is, this is brilliant to have both trees and, you know, farm crops, garden crops, livestock grazing. We'd had goats uh, and pigs as a, as a kid for, for livestock, just for supplemental um, food and all that kind of stuff. And the goats for brush clearing. And it was in part because I was exposed to agroforestry uh, within a somewhat natural forest context um, and not necessarily an orchard context that to me, why would I just plant an orchard? Because there were orchardists, apple orchardists near us. Why would I plant an orchard with only apples when they have to go out and they got to spray 75,000 times a week? They got to do this and that and the other thing. And then they whine about the fact that at the end of the day, they don't have enough money to, to cover all their costs. It's like, well, wait a minute. I get perfectly good apples out here and nobody did anything to them. Um, and so those two things kind of combined. It's like, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to mimic natural ecosystems and manage natural ecosystems to produce food, fuels, medicines, fiber, not just carrots or celery, but a full, complete diet by managing an ecosystem. And, and that's really the foundation of restoration agriculture, right? Which is the, the let's say, the type of agriculture which you have, you have created throughout these years. Correct me if I'm wrong um, in the way that I'm explaining it. But, you know, maybe, maybe you could then explain to us or refine the definition of, for our listeners of what is restoration agriculture, which I would also advise our listeners to check out your book, which I have read. And as a disclaimer, I also say that I've done a course with you uh, so, to our listeners uh, when I started off in, in this whole path five years ago. Uh, and so I have a bit of an idea of a better idea of what it is. And I really look forward to delving into some of the details with you um, and some of the questions that I've been wanting to ask you for many years, I guess. Good. <laughs> but, uh, but maybe, yeah, for our listeners then, could you just, you know, give a bit of a, of a summary as to what is restoration agriculture based on, of course, the, the last sentences that you've said, which are fundamental. Yeah, so I deliberately chose the name restoration and agriculture uh, to, to address two different parts of a polarity that really doesn't and shouldn't exist. There's, there's ecological restorationists that, I, you know, because I, I, I went on to college, went back for ecology and got into doing some ecological restoration. Ecological restoration meant, and still does to a, a, a large extent, trying to replicate an ecological form that was existing at one point in time that somebody wrote down a long time ago and then arrest it there. And if those plants didn't exist there back then, we got to get rid of them now with herbicide. And if they don't, plants don't exist there now, we go plant them at another expense. So ecological restoration is 100% all expense unless you're playing conservation easements game and selling development rights, which we won't get into, the, the act of ecological restoration is all expense. Well, then agriculture was like, oh, we got to get rid of nature, get rid of everything that was here to plant our, our crop, which is a limited number of species that we put in the ground. Well, when you eliminate nature, you eliminate all of the ecosystem services that nature provides for itself 
and you as a farmer or an orchardist, you now have to supply those those inputs. You have to manage fertility, which nature takes care of on its own. You have to manage pest control, which nature takes care of on its own, disease control. Um, you have to manage you know, the, the breeding and the genetic selection. You have to manage the whole entire thing. And then you'll wonder why uh, it's expensive. Both of those forms, I think, are uh, uh, bastardizations of something that actually is, is, is amazingly powerful, which is nature itself. As far as we know, nature itself has been operating just fine since the beginning of when it actually started, whether it was 6,000 years ago or 4 billion years ago, depending on what reference material you're looking at. It's been operating just fine, thank you very much, without us having to manage it and add inputs to it. Um, and it's, it's managed during, you know, volcanic cataclysms, ice ages, slammed by asteroids. Um, there's been huge massive extinctions. Think about the last massive extinction before this prior one. They said like 75, 80% or something like that of all life on earth disappeared. Um, and when that asteroid hit the Yucatan, probably a wall of heat, you know, some 8,000 degrees roars around the planet, stuff burns to a crisp. And yet look what came out of it. The most amazingly fertile soils that we've ever experienced, a huge diversity of animals all over the place and plant life, you know, rainforests and Arctic tundra and boreal forests. And it did it all. It increased the fertility of soils and had this amazing proliferation of life with zero help from us, period. That is an unstoppable force of nature. And I happen to invest in that. And I trust that 100,000 times more than I trust something from a bottle that you put with water and spray all over everything. So back to the definition. <laughs> restoration agriculture is ecological restoration of a particular kind. We do ecological restoration. We mimic the uh, regionally adapted plant community types. And then we cherry pick out of that a selection of species that provide food, fuels, medicines, or fibers. Then we strive to manage that ecosystem with the same types of disturbance regime that it would have been managed uh, naturally during its whole entire life cycle. Uh, and so what I have found is the fact that my input costs have almost disappeared. Uh, yields per individual crop have gone down below what the chemical people are getting. Um, but it doesn't matter because the input costs have gone so far down that the spread between inputs and actual yields is bigger. And it, and it, uh, it may not pay me $85 million a year salary, but what it does, and this is key to the whole thing, is there's enough of a cash flow coming off of that system, one, to feed the family that's there, to supply a surplus of food going out into the market. And I've sold all of the produce that we've grown here wholesale, and I've done it on purpose because this is not a, a niche specialty market that only wealthy people can afford. This is wholesale quantities and wholesale price for the products that have come off this farm. It will, it will supply wholesale markets, feeds the family or families that are, are managing the property. 
uh, and more and most importantly, actually, is it's paying for all of the different investments that we're doing on the property. This this uh, land right here was um, maybe 30 percent abandoned cornfields when we got here, uh, 50 or so percent, 60 percent uh, um pasture that was overgrazed like small short as a golf course green and a little patch of woods that they had totally logged over so it was like stump sprouts and trees that were about three inch diameter when we took over no buildings no well no nothing all of the infrastructure that you see the building that we're in notice those boards back there those are milled from, yeah yeah milled, they're beautiful those are milled from trees that i planted That's so amazing. restoration agriculture goes to a site and if you buy a degraded site it's below market value as far as real estate's concerned. Um, then we use the agriculture, we use restoration agriculture to develop the asset, to plant all these trees, uh, to um, build all the buildings, drill the wells, et cetera, et cetera. So the gain that we get is disproportionately greater than somebody else. If you buy a beautiful farm, fertile soils and well-watered and all this kind of beautiful stuff about this farm, you're paying top dollar for it. And then if you expect to go ahead and cash flow with your agriculture to pay for all of that, you're hallucinating. That's very interesting. And just to get a sense of a bit more of the, 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 the economics and the cash flow that you're able to generate, um, let's just start with one detail. What's the size of your farm? The farm is uh, 106 acres U.S., so what's that, 45 hectare plus? Yeah, approximately, yeah. Okay, so we've got uh, on about 40, 45 hectares, um, and that is able, that that amount of land and the way that you're, you've planted it, which we're going to go into in a bit, that's able to supply the needs, the cash flow needs, the cash needs of a family. Correct. Or more. Correct. Right? Correct. So it's, it, that would be enough for one family. It's, it's enough for more. And the reason okay. why I know it's enough for more is because I only do what I need. And there's plenty of other stuff going on here. And through the years, we've had, you know, couples and, and individuals that have come on. This is part of our training program. You come here, we work together, you know, side by side. You learn how the system works, but you have your own revenue stream. You're doing something different than I'm doing. And there, I don't know how many total human niches there would be available because we've never really pushed it. There's okay, a, but there's a, a lot of potential to just you yeah. know, keep adding layers yep. of of complexity and of of biodiversity and of income. I haven't I haven't commercially harvested berries in years. I haven't. Interesting. I haven't I haven't sold any any apple cider in years. There's lots of things that I don't do. Not not because uh, I can't. It's just that I don't need to anymore. I did things that I don't. I don't want to pick cucumbers anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And so one of the one of the other things that's making me think about is, you know, you're talking about a low input system. And so I'm imagining that that's also means, you know, high inputs, high fertilizer, a lot of fertilizers means trees grow very fast and income is generated sooner. So on your system with low inputs, you are generating income a bit later. Is that correct? So when would you start to so pay? There's, for, a, there's, a whole mm -hmm. bunch, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. I just want to shoot right out of the water. Uh, so all of this, you know, the high input and the fertility stuff, uh, nature has never put in an external input. This is all internally recycled and recirculated. One of the, one of the keys to the fertility management here is animals. They're a part of the system. Uh, they're amazing, the, the fertility inputs that they are. That's, I don't consider that an input. 
I consider that a, that's a yield. I harvest whatever I'm selling, whether it's pork or beef or whatever. Well, then to say that, oh, if you go ahead and you use fertilizers, your yields, you know, you'll get your yields sooner. It's like, show me, show me and show me the numbers and show me that it works. And who says that these aren't producing early? Because one of the key things that we do, uh, this is where the human element is critical in a system like this. I'm not talking about pure nature run wild. I'm talking about a uh, an ecosystem that the human inhabitants have a direct personal relationship with, and we apply all of our intellectual and our labor knowledge that we possibly can to it, which includes a knowledge of how uh, how nature has selected for the species that are the most adapted to a particular site. Uh, so plant breeding, animal breeding is a critical component of this. And with the the trees and shrubs that we're using, when I first purchased trees, brought them to the property, first criteria was you will produce, you know, nuts or fruit within three years of me planting you or you're out the door. And the ones that I did plant on the, on the site, um, I take apples, for example. I originally brought in 249 different varieties of apples. You will now survive all by yourself with zero inputs, period. And if you disappear, good riddance, because I don't want to waste time babying a tree that can't take care of itself in a, in a semi-natural environment. So the, so the varieties get whittled away. Well, then how many of you people have actually saved your apple seeds from the ones that went through that process? Go ahead and let 90% of the plants that you put in the ground die. That's a victory if you're looking at the genetics of an ecological system. They are not adapted to this place. They don't belong here. Then of the ones that do survive, they reproduce really early. Now I'm looking for the ones that reproduce the most. Then I, you know, they have the most fruit or the most nuts. Then I save those seeds and put them in the ground. And if you just keep continuing that process through the years, you end up with a population of, of plants and animals that just keeps getting better and better and better as we interact with it with that goal in mind. And as far as, That's, as, far yeah. as hazelnuts are concerned, you can go to the Upper Midwest Hazelnut Development Initiative to their websites. They have all, they've been researching uh, yields off of a number of different hazelnut growers' sites and I actually have a uh, at least a 10-year track record that they have kept track of, of continually increasing the yields from our hazelnuts and the diameter of the nuts from the hazelnuts. I believe the, um, the nut diameter of the kernel itself increase has been four millimeters in like 15 years. And if you do four millimeters, the volume is cubed. That's a dramatic increase of yield yeah. just by doing yeah. this process. Now, what will happen is eventually you'll find one plant that's like super incredible. Well, then you can go ahead and clone that. And so a cultivar is part of our program, but it's not the backbone of it. We're taking care of the whole entire herd. And then what we are doing is we're bringing in superior genetics from outside, letting them join the gene pool. And but you've, you've reached a four millimeter increase in size of, of the nuts plus the increases in yield. You've reached that not by adding in extra genetics, by selecting the best producing, uh, in this case, let's talk about hazelnuts, the best producing hazelnuts that you had. You've taken out all the ones that weren't producing a lot and that weren't producing uh, beautiful nuts. And this is just through selection. Correct. Correct. And of course, through the regeneration taking place 
uh, through your management. That, that's one of the things I love uh, how you used that word because the word regeneration and regenerative has been used by natural resource managers starting in Germany like 400 years ago. It has had a very specific meaning until it was stolen by people who want to certify farmers and charge them for it and by people who want to market products. And what regenerative means in, in the ecological natural context is that a individual or a population or a system has the ability to regenerate and expand its population without any external input, period, and it can survive anything that that place throws at it. That's regenerative. So I stand by the ecological definition of what regenerative is. This is a regenerative system. In part, we know this is true because um, <laughs> embarrassment moment here. My systems are expanding onto neighboring properties all by themselves all by themselves i've got you know one neighbor there's nothing he can do about so it funny. but he just he has to put extra spray down on his property line next to me because my trees keep taking over it, it makes sense because you've selected trees that are adapted to that to that area you're, you're imitating the local biome so that they're, they're just adapted to the to the fields next door if they're pioneers right and, and this, right, exactly. And this one particular fence, he keeps putting fertilizer on. And, and those trees, this is, there's a row of hickories with, uh, with chestnuts and hazelnuts in there. But these hickories are just like sucking it up. I've never seen hickories that have had so many nuts in the world and before. Well, if I'm adding fertilizer to get those increased yields, what is the, what is the uh, cost benefit of that? How much can I afford to spend at what price of what analysis in order to get what yield? And will that give me an extra benefit in the marketplace? If I did that, that's a big unknown. I don't know. If, however, my plants are sitting next to my neighbor and he's just pumping them full of fertilizer, I get the benefit from his expense. That's interesting. So I wanted to just go back a bit to the precocity of yields, which is something that's and, and I'm coming from the perspective, I mean, I've just spent the last four months going around and talking to basically consultants and a lot of farmers that were in conventional agriculture. And I really enjoyed that because I can really bring that perspective in a way to the conversation because I, I have an understanding, I've gained an understanding of how they're thinking. And, and this precocity of yield is something that is extremely important for them. So I just want you to confirm something in case some farmers that are listening to us are really, you know, concerned about this. And I would actually include myself in there. Um, so you're saying that with your, through your system of, you know, planting high density, many crops, and then selecting them, you're managing to have the same precocity of yields than other, let's use the hazelnut example, hazelnut growers inside this association that you mentioned. Or are you reaching precocity of yields through other crops? Because you also mentioned animals. So maybe you're using, for example, in the first years, lots of pigs and you're harvesting them obviously after a year. You know, talk to me a bit about your precocity of yields, but also the precocity of cash flow, maybe. Pre pre Just elaborate precocity a of yields, uh, if you want to compare like hazelnuts to hazelnuts with somebody else, for one, nobody has bothered, no third party disinterested you know, university, nonprofit, whatever, has bothered to uh, measure yields here with, with that in mind. Um, I'm willing to bet, though, that uh, plant comparison to plant comparison, my yields are much lower. One of the things on the precocity of yields with hazelnut, uh, the Forest Ag Nursery, which, you know, I, I run that nursery, forestag.com, uh, the mm -hmm. controlled cross plants that we have in that uh, for sale, 
uh, about 80, 85% of those um, produce nuts the very second year. Now, if you got a 100-foot row of these plants that have nuts the second year, if you go harvest that row, you might get a cup, cup and a half for how much work to actually go get those nuts. It's not necessarily economic worth it, economically worth it if you looked at that as an individual standalone crop all by itself. However, it's critical to the overall functioning um, of, the, of the system because I want to increase the, uh, the frequency of early reproduction and heavy reproduction, and that's how I do it. I can get the generational turnover because I have this you know, amazing hyperpercocity. I've got three different family lines of chestnut that um, right, out of the, right out of the seed, they go to flower. Well, think about what happens for this little tree if it comes up and it puts so many of its resources, it partitions so many of its resources into flowering. It may make really weak wood or it might not store enough to survive the winter. So I have to pay attention to those really hyperprecocious ones, grab that seed, and make sure that that plant stays alive somehow because that's my, that is my, <laughs> that's my surrogate uterus. I've got to have that for the fast turnover of the generations. So back, back to yield, the yield in this system, I don't look at individual crops um, from the perspective that an orchardist would. I'm not growing hazelnuts to make money from hazelnuts. I'm growing hazelnuts as part of an ecological system that includes them in it. And instead of managing the hazelnuts with expenses, I'm managing an ecosystem and a part of how I manage that ecosystem is with yields, and I'll use cattle as one example, is those cattle are my lawnmowers, so now I don't have to do weed control. Uh, they are my fertility inputs, 35 gallons a year and a day, and I don't know how many dozen cow patties a day uh, on every single uh, acre of ground. And then um, they also do a lot of uh, um, disease control. A lot of people don't really realize how useful cattle can be. Those are especially helpful in the apples because they'll prune all the branches away from down low. So now I've got like apple trees that have no branches below five feet. And you want to see apple scab disappear as a problem, have no branches in the lower five feet. Most fungal diseases in my apples just go away once those trees are stripped from five foot on down. So these super high density mini dwarf plantings you're creating the perfect conditions for apple scab to proliferate. So no wonder you have to spray X times a week. So the, so the benefits of managing it as a system, instead of thinking of it as individual crops, uh, that's where the magic is. That's really, really interesting. So, okay, we've, we've talked for half an hour and we haven't actually described <laughs> the system, which, uh, I mean, some people will probably be uh, really annoyed about. And uh, maybe in the intro, I'll, I'll tell people, go to minute 30 to right, listen right. to how the system works and then go back 20 minutes. Um, but maybe it's time for us to give a quick intro, a quick description of what the system looks like, the tree lines, a minimum of idea of, you know, right. how you've mixed it all up and the spacing. And then we'll, I'll, I'll guide you step by step into, you know, the next descriptions of your farm, I guess. Okay, so the first order of business was to do a little research and find out what this place has been for the previous 95 million years. And for the most part, this part of Wisconsin <clears throat> uh, was oak savanna, but we're just at the southern fringe of the northern hardwoods, uh, then where it goes off into, into um, boreal uh, forest. So we're at a nice little intersection, but this was pretty much the... Uh, semi-open 
oak savanna. Much of Europe has been that way as well. Uh, it's one of the more uh, widespread um, plant community types that's around. And in, uh, in that plant community, the tall trees were oak, chestnut, or beech. Now, beech is a shade tolerant. So it would be a late successional, you know, 300 plus years down the line before beech was able to come in. So an overstory of oak, chestnut, or beech, all those produce nuts. Chestnut conveniently produces them every single year. Uh, Medium-sized trees, kind of, they can be up in the upper story with the, with the, uh, the taller trees, but there's also a diversity of uh, species that goes downward, and that's the prunuses from you know tall cherries to medium cherries to uh wild plum which are more shrubby to uh things like beech plum that kind of crawl along the ground so we have all these different layers represented by prunus but want to stop here and start counting the crops we've got chestnuts oaks beech nuts cherries plums two different kinds of plums bush cherries so there's seven different crops right there already. Well, one of the understory trees uh, were malice apples um, and, and their cousins, you know, the pears and the haws and um, what's sl uh, slow, sladorn. Uh, those are all cousins of the apple. So there's, I'll just stick apple and forget about the other ones for this, but I've got pears. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, shrubs were hazelnut. And then shade-tolerant plants were things such as currant and gooseberry, uh, cane fruits such as raspberry and blackberry. There's You're making me hungry. There's grass all the way around the outside, you know, grass and flowers and all that kind of stuff. Then there's vines, which here were grapes. Mm. So I don't know how many different things I listed right there. And yeah, some, up to 15. And then, and then the animals, because now the animal – oh, <laughs> the animals. So I got um, cattle, um, hogs, poultry. And then uh, what decomposes all this organic matter are fungi. Every single thing that I listed right there in that plant community type is edible by me, or you can feed it to an animal, uh, or you can sell it to somebody else. 100% of it is you know, edible somehow and for sale. And it, it exists naturally, and it has done so for 95 million years without any cash flow outlay i mean it, you don't need to spend anything on pest control disease control etc etc and it goes through natural processes will i get the same yields as 300 bushel an acre corn no nope i get and this is where this is where the agroforesters uh, land equivalent ratio comes in handy if i plant only corn i'll get 100 percent corn for a land equivalent ratio of one but if i plant say 80 percent of that is corn and then just 20 percent of it is uh, walnuts um, because the rows would be wider spaced. I can put them closer together. I can get a 50% stocking density of walnut. I've got a, a 0.8 yield out of my corn, a 0.5 yield out of my walnuts. It's a 1.3 yield. Now let's throw in animals. Let's throw in you know all these different other kinds of things. The, the opportunities uh, of polyculture systems, we don't really know where they can go yet. In part, in part because, let's take it here, one guy right here, I also didn't want to have swarms of volunteers or slaves working, you know, for me. I wanted this to be like the independent American farmer, which is the way we're supposed to be, right? Well, what can one guy do? If I'm, uh, if I'm 
here full time and working the system, the most I could really keep track of was like three above ground plants and three species of animals and then four or five row crops. That was about all I could handle. It's just too crazy busy. Well, then as time has gone on and my woody plants are producing more and more, I can drop off some of the things that I didn't appreciate as much. Yeah, the succession kind of evolves, and so does this. Your business also goes through succession. Correct, correct. Yeah, that's that's another thing. People are like, yeah, but you know, what are your yields? Show me the economics. They're different every year. Absolutely different every year. So you've listed all these different species. Do you plant them on the same rows? In the sense, I'm I'm thinking about how you're gaining certain types of efficiencies for harvesting, etc. How did you organize them together? Is it single row species? Great, that's a great question, and and you got to go back to 1995 when I got started on this property right here. There was no such thing as an internet. There was you know not even such thing as like you know dial up internet back then, and and phone. If you were to call somebody out of town that would be a like $5 phone call. So, so, and who was writing books on this stuff back in the, like the eighties and nineties, nobody. So I had zero uh, real input on, on how can I go about doing this? You know, very few examples of, of what would work. And so I did a lot of experimenting with different layouts and configurations and uh, starting with this basic simple formula of doing you know, agroforestry systems, most specifically alley cropping, silver wearable, where you have rows of trees and an alley with some sort of crop. Well, if your crop happens to be grass or hay, um, then you graze animals on it. That's uh, silvopasture. So those two, those two agroforestry practices were my most commonly done. So I would start with fairly wide spaces. Some I did single species. Some I did uh, multiple species with uh, over-under type configuration. So I'd have, you know, this one row that I was just out there this morning. I had um, uh, pine nuts, uh, chestnuts, hazelnuts, and currants all in the same row. You plant them all at the same time. And as they grow, they just grow to their different heights. Um, That was one particular place. There's other places that I did, like a two-story within the row. And I'm thinking right now, after I left that place, I had to go buy this other one and it was chestnuts over currants. And then in the middles of the alley, after I was finished, once the trees got big enough and it interfered with cropping in the alley, I then planted um, the quote unquote weeds that showed up in my system, which were mulberry, elderberry, grapes, and raspberry. So I'd plant them right down the middle. And that particular area happens to be home base for my, um, for my pigs is that that is the main pasture where they go. And from June until the end of October, they're 100% totally on, on wild food. They, they feed themselves, takes them six months instead of five to grow up to market weight, but they can feed themselves. Uh, I never feed them any more than what would keep a 30-pound piglet alive. So it's about a cup and a half of, of grain feed per day. And the reason why I do that is that's bait. I go ahead and I, I whistle them in. They hear the sound. They come and they get a little snack. Last 30 days, I feed them on a trailer. And the morning that they go on a ride, all they have to do is just shut the door. There's no squeeze shoots and trauma. Um, so that, that configuration, the multiple species, uh, that's probably my favorite area because I've got, I got fairly wide spaces on the chestnuts. And then I get a separate system right down the middle. And that's with the mulberries and the... Uh, elderberries, raspberries, and grapes, and so on. 
That's fascinating. Okay, that's really interesting. So yeah, you must have like a big mix of 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 layouts and and etc. But do, do you do any mechanical harvesting of uh, of your hazelnuts, for example? How, how do you work with with harvesting? The uh, later plantings are planted so that I can do mechanical harvesting, okay. but because this uh, has become uh, more of a seed production breeding operation as time has gone by. I'm having fewer and fewer sales of nuts for people to eat and more sales of seedlings, which are you know, the offspring of these seeds. And so we're individually hand harvesting the majority of our, our uh, hazelnuts, even though we could use a machine if we wanted to. And the reason why the machine harvesting isn't as efficient here is because I got so many gaps in the row because as soon as I realize that this plant isn't going to meet uh, my criteria, I, I cut it down. So what, and this is just what has just happened. Um, I, I got back from, you know, working trip and all that kind of stuff. I hit the ground running. We immediately go out and uh, this year the selection is nut diameter. A year ago it was a total overall per plant yield. And so this year we're doing a diameter increase and we're, we're bumping things up 30%, which is a really, really aggressive uh boost and i don't know if we're going to have enough seed to to satisfy our nursery demands i think we are uh, so what's going to happen is now we've marked all the ones that we're going to harvest for seed so we'll go through and pick those first then we'll go ahead and pick the rest of the population and then after everything's harvested this fall uh, if i've got enough seed um, from the from the the big diameter jump trees then i'll just chip everything else down before I chip it all down, I grab a bag of Strafaria, uh, wine cap Strafaria spawn. I spread it all over the place. Then I chip it. And next year we'll have wine caps up the wazoo. Growing wild. Amazing. Um, to understand a bit more about the, some of the practical elements, when you implemented this system, um, without going into the details of how you plant it, etc., because I want to take this conversation into into another direction, but did you do any, you didn't fertilize at all. So you started with a degraded, um, um, you know, corn and soy rotation field and you didn't put any, um, just to confirm, you didn't put any fertilizer. With uh, asparagus, I did because asparagus uh, isn't adapted to the native soil here. It wouldn't, it, you know, it'll do okay, but it wouldn't do as well as I needed it to. And that was going to be a significant part of my cash flow. So, what I did is I didn't amend the whole field. I a band applied right in the row. And so the, okay. on the asparagus, probably every three years, I did a little tweak to it. And it was all certified organic products. Most of it was um, calcium and phosphorus, which uh, around here, that's the big uh, shortage. We're on dolomite limestone. And years and years of cropping have taken away much of the calcium. And then they just keep applying regular limestone, which regular limestone around here means dolomite so the magnesium stays behind they keep shipping the, the uh, calcium away and you end up having this calcium magnesium ratio that's out of whack and it makes a really stiff soil. really hard sticky yeah soil and so for the for the uh, asparagus i wanted to make sure that was amended because it's somewhat of a sissy of a plant i didn't grow any really fancy uh produce crops i grew really rugged tough things like uh, like cucumbers, green peppers, uh, winter squash, pumpkins, those are really rough and tough plants. And then in most of the pastures uh, and next to the rows of trees that I planted, 
Um, I used a single shank subsoiler for years and years to help break up compaction and get water to infiltrate and then lots of seed to just reseed to establish the pasture plants that, that I want to have. So I think what's done the most has been the water management and um, the deep ripping in the early years. I haven't used the subsoiler in years now. I don't have to. Interesting. And so the tree rows didn't have any fertilizer. Correct. You didn't, you didn't, oh, that's fascinating. Um, and so they started in some really tough conditions. They did. So you were selecting trees that were adapted to, you know, corn and soy, uh, toxic, um, uh, correct. And actually we grew, we grew squash. Uh, I've been a part of the organic Valley cooperative. And so that's where my, um, produce will go and every grower who grew squash had to get their soil tested for i forgot what the compound was but it's one of the bad uh like the really persistent um uh insecticides and um my soil here tested hot for seven years and so i couldn't my squash couldn't be included in the lots that went for baby food but then after seven years went by, whatever, it's either, either got metabolized or broken down or, you know, shipped off to Whole Foods in a cucumber or something like that. But then once it, once seven years went by, uh, my, the, the chemical contamination in the soil was gone. That's crazy. And in terms of your management of this system, um, based on what you're saying, I guess you're not doing a lot of pruning to your trees. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you are, you're, not, you're definitely not you're not definitely not fertilizing them nor irrigating them grazing animals through the system and grazing animals are pooping and peeing that's called fertilizer so it's not that the system's going unfertilized i put clover seed down almost every single year not over the whole property but somewhere is getting clover if that population is going down uh so yeah. if you're seeing you know seeing clovers somewhere that's nitrogen uh, I was going to use a curse word, but yellow yellow blossom sweet clover, that's putting down 90 plus pounds of, of nitrogen per acre. That's fertilizer. And then you add cows on top of that, that's fertilizer. So don't give me this no fertilizer crap. It's a fertilized system. Um, but what was I arguing about? Yeah, I wanted to talk about pruning because that's significant. If I'm, I'm driving by this young little tree and it's got a branch that now sticks out because say I'm cutting hay or I'm, I'm, I'm cultivating a, a squash field. Uh, and if the branch um, hits the tractor, or hits me and it bends and it goes by, I don't, I don't cut it. Then if the branch is big enough that I can go like this and get it up and over the top of the roll cage, I don't cut it. If I go like this and it tries to poke me and lance me and push me off the back of the horse, well then boom, down it goes. This time of year right now, I'm tr- and now that more of the trees are larger, I travel with the chainsaw right between my feet. I get to the head of a row. I run down that row and I cut everything that sticks out into the row, you know, eight feet and down. It gets cut off. I lay it crosswise to the path, spread the strafaria, and I chip it with a heavy-duty orchard mower. Um, And so now we're ready to harvest because we have a nice clean mowed place and we'll have have mushrooms next year. Um, So most of my management is mowing chainsaw mowing and uh yeah it's mowing it really is and and i it doesn't mimic fire perfectly because you don't have the heat and you're 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 with fire you're you're losing a lot of those calories 
I like the idea that I'm converting the 4,800 BTU of energy in a, in, you know, thousand pounds of wood. I'm converting that into biomass, which is now soil fertility and all that kind of stuff. Um, but one of the things I have toyed with, especially in the hazelnuts is if I have, uh, a propane, um, weed burner pulled straight behind me and then a roller to immediately snuff the uh, fire as I go out. That's, that is actually fire. It's not mimicking fire. It is fire. And so how would they perform differently? That would now be a, an added cost for the propane and the roller and the equipment and all that kind of stuff. And I haven't done it yet. A couple of times I've, uh, I've lit places on fire uh, in part because what's really interesting, we've got several different spots on the farm where all these different um, prairie plants started to sprout and grow. I've got this patch of big blue stem um, that's like eight foot tall is just taken over in this one area because I manage it like a savanna. And we have all kinds of uh, endangered species, rare and endangered species that are out here, not because I've intentionally done something to help them, but because this is actually providing ideal habitat for them. One of them is the Massasauga rattlesnake, which is a little problematic. You know, I, I got rattlesnakes all over the place that never used to be here and they aren't in a cornfield. How did, how did biodiversity get there? How did they access your, your farm? I've seen aerial pictures and it seems like... That, that's mind-blowing to me. And, and the one that really kind of really flips me out is snapping turtles. I've got like 40 little pocket ponds all over the place. And it was like three years ago, maybe four years ago, there's this little snapping turtle about this big in one of my ponds. Now, we're at least a mile and a half, maybe two miles from the nearest surface water around. So that thing had to come a long way or get dropped by a bird. And, and snapping turtles have one of the highest mortality rates of any terrestrial organism that's out there. It's like one out of 300 young actually grows to adulthood. So how on earth did this thing get here? And then the frogs, there's at least seven species of frogs that are here. They had to hop a long ways. Now, toads, I can understand. Toads are a little bit more terrestrial. They'll be in your yard and your garden. But, but things like, um, like green frogs. Green frogs require perennial water for at least two years. It's like, how, where did they come from? Good question. I have no idea. That's fascinating. And we don't necessarily need to understand this. What's beautiful about this is that you've created and you've, you've, you've mimicked a natural ecosystem. You've created opportunities and habitats, niche, niches available for biodiversity. And it came. Yeah. I'm an, I'm a niche guy instead of a niche guy, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and one of the things that it's a common question that I get from people. We'll be walking by. We do quite a bit of quite a few farm tours right now, which the guy across the street who has like 400 acres of corn, nobody wants to go walk around his place and pay to go on a tour. Well, people do want to come here. They want to you know, pay and camp out or stay in a cabin, that kind of stuff. He can't do that because he's got this cornfield. Well, we'll be walking along on a tour and somebody sees this tree that's just like riddled with some kind of horrible disease. And it was just like, it looks like heck. And they say, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with this tree? And I say, who cares? Who cares? I don't care what that disease is because my trees that don't get it are resistant to it somehow. Do I need to know how they're resistant? Nope. I just want, I just want yields. Then there's also a thing that happens that I'll have these really hyper-precocious. I'm thinking of one particular individual chestnut that it will grow like two or three years, and it on a little plant that has a footprint of about you know one meter, 
of, of green, you know, as it grows up, it probably has close to a pound of chestnuts on it. I think partly because it produces so much that it, it doesn't really have the resources to keep going or to resist too many diseases. Uh, and then partly because it's got to have American genetics in there somehow because it just grows straight up and it gets the blight. But it keeps re-sprouting. And every year I get a dog on you know, anywhere between a half a pound and a, and a pound of nuts. And so if you were to say, oh, you can't have an orchard that way. It looks like you know somebody bombed it out. But that's one of my most highly productive plants. And if I had a whole acre of these things that look like heck, you know, any orchardist would probably throw up because it's so offensive to what they're taught, especially if they're Dutch. Oh my gosh, the Dutch would totally flip out if they saw that. Um, it's, a, it's a mess. I have another California walnut. If you're familiar with California walnuts, USDA growing zone eight, they don't grow around here. Well, you plant about a thousand of them per year, year after year after year, not all of them die. I've got two that are about 100 feet apart from one another in the same row, and I'll take tours by it. And the first one has three stems laying on the ground that through the years, it's grown up to a certain height and blown over because the wood is so weak. It just falls apart. Um, and right now it's going like, eh, it's trying to survive. And it's got a million little stems. It just looks really ugly. And I ask, do you like this plant? Is this a good plant to have if you want to have a walnut orchard? And most people say, no, look at all the different criteria of that being a good plant. It fails. They don't see the criteria that I see. Well, then we go down to the one 100 feet down below. And there's this big, beautiful tree. You know, it's like easily one foot in diameter. I haven't seen any spot of any disease that affects that tree at all. Hardly any insects is maybe two or three holes in the foliage of it. It's just a beautiful, spectacular tree. Now, everybody agrees, oh, yeah, that's the tree to have. That's what you want. That's a perfect, beautiful tree. That tree, that big, beautiful tree has never had a nut. It's never flowered, and it's like 18 years old. That is a waste of space, whereas that little one that falls over is the mother of nations. It survives 40 below zero almost every single winter. And the seed that I've gotten from that have populated the rest of the farm. And so we have to, we have to like let go of our concepts of what we think should be and learn how to work with what actually is. And we find out that it's actually quite brilliant how it's all designed and how it works together. Nature is amazingly successful. You know, it's something that's coming to my mind is that, you know, as you're describing your farm and, and the way that you manage it, it's actually pretty intensive. You don't you don't give a lot in the sense non intensive in the conventional way that we think of intensive through lots of irrigation, lots of, uh, of fertilization, but intensive in terms of you know you're really selecting intensively for you know productivity, uh, yield, um, and and lots of different parameters adapted to the site, etc. That you're selecting for. You're also you know, intensively mixing lots of species together, getting animals involved. This is quite an intensive, let's say, space. Um, I think it's information intense, yes. It's very intensive of the information. If you look at a natural system, if you've got 100 different species going on, 100 times 100 is, is how many different possible permutations of this affecting that. So, yeah, that's massively intense. But I don't have to do it. With the selecting, think about this. Do I have to tell you, to go to an apple orchard, his apple orchard that somebody's abandoned, I want you to go pick an apple that you want to eat. You'll naturally go get like this big, juicy, 
you know, if you like red ones or whatever, no bugs, no diseases, etc. We know as human beings what it is that we actually want from a system. So I just wander through and it's like, wow, I want that one, that one, that one, that one. So I harvest all those for my seed. That's not really all that intense. A four-year-old can go pick the, the apple that they want to eat. They can do genetic selection as long as we save the seed and, and keep it going on. And then as far as the intensive, it's not labor intensive. Every uh, farmer is going to have to harvest. So, so we all share that. Uh, I have more harvests at different periods of time because they have more you know, crops that are growing. Um, but I have large periods of time that I don't have to be here. I was just, um, you know, on the road working and vacationing from July 12th until last week, not doing anything. So then I come back here. Now I'm getting ready for hazelnut harvest. Well, by getting ready for hazelnut harvest, it's getting me ready for apple harvest, which is getting me ready for chestnut harvest, which gets it all set to send the livestock uh, to the slaughterhouse. And if you have, if, if you're doing like annual produce or row crops, if I'm doing uh, weed control in my corn that's next to my walnuts, for example, it's taking care of the weed control for the, uh, for the walnuts. But I'm focusing on this cash crop because this is, you know, this is my corn or my vegetables, but it's taking care of that. So by taking care of this, it naturally takes care of that, which takes care of that, which takes care of that. And if I just walk away, um, it does okay. This is a natural system. It's been here for 94 million years. That's very interesting. I, I wanted to go a bit in, into the, the w- one aspect that, uh, that I find curious to understand is you started planting 100 species, let's say, or 100, uh, um, not species, 100 um, 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 specimen of one species. And out of those 100, after your thinning, when you would consider your, you know, your th- the system to be more mature, let's say at maybe 20, 25 years, how many of those 100, let's use ha- hazelnuts again, because we've been using this example, how many of those 100 would be left, would you have at the end of it? It depends if they, if they, you know, make it through all my criteria. And, and it's, but typically in your system, like what, what kind of have you seen this to? Now, how you phrase that question, this is not your fault, shows how most people are trained. Nature doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. This individual grows and it does really well for a period of time. And then the climate is different. The CO2 levels in the atmosphere are different. A new pest comes through. A new disease comes through. Now it's susceptible when it wasn't. It used to be the best variety in the world, but now it's not. And so now it drops out. So when you ask nature, well, gee whiz, nature, which one of your species was the best? That's an irrelevant question. It's a relevant question. What's here is here. And it changes and it adapts with reality as reality changes. And if you're looking for an easy mathematical number to track that, there ain't one. There's not one. Of course. Oh, it would be extremely dependent on, as you said, of course, the years, and that makes sense. Uh, but also on the species, on the place where they're planted, on on a variety of aspects. But what I was trying to maybe understand, and I'll I'll, I'll, ex- I'll elaborate a bit more, is I'm trying to understand if in order for a person to to set up a system like this, to start a system like this, they're going to need to have a pretty good deal with the nurseries, because if we're buying, for example, and I, that's my that's what I would expect. So please correct me and and tell me how you've how you go around that problem. But let's say I'm planting, you know, here around, around here, the, the chestnuts would cost about 12 euros a, a tree, um, you know, um, 
I'm trying to think about the, the trees that are similar to yours. Uh, there's more olives and almonds, etc. But like almonds would be three and a half euros a tree. So if you're planting a hundred of them and at the end you're expecting to keep or you, you know, you're going to be thinning them gradually as they just don't perform. Um, how do you, how do you go about that? How do you just kind of manage that huge cost, which is a very significant cost at the start of an operation in terms of, you know, buying the genetics. Now here is, um, here curious. is where I'm going to defer to the agroforesters that have all the Excel spreadsheets. And if you go do the Excel spreadsheets and you look at the number of plants that you put in or the price of the plants that you put in, and then you give it, they, they run it and they amortize it over 24 years or whatever like that. It disappears. It's a non-existent cost. It really doesn't matter how many you put in per acre as far as the overall performance of the system over 24 years. However, that's not my point. My point is, and, and see how you just said that. It's like, well, each plant costs 25 euros or 10 euros because I can do tens. Easy to do tens. So if everything costs me 10 to put it in, um, uh, you know what an equation is, right? An equation is a, is an equal sign, which means this side equals that side. If you're looking at the equation of a thousand trees equals ten thousand euros, you're looking at it from the wrong side. It's still ten thousand trees, you know, a thousand trees equals ten thousand euros, but you're on the expense side instead of on the profit side. A nursery grows these trees from seed, sells them, and it marks them up at a profit. So why not set up your own nursery, either buy bulk wholesale, split them up and sell them to other people, and the profits from you marking them up and selling them to other people pay for your plants to go on the ground. Then once upon a time, you'll start to have your own seed coming in or you're buying seed from somewhere else. You grow those plants out and you sell some. Planting trees on your farm is a profitable venture. If it's not a profitable venture, you're doing it wrong now wrong doesn't mean you're a bad person it just means that you're not doing it in a way that's profitable you do it in a way that's profitable by buying more than you need at wholesale bulk prices and selling enough off to cover your expenses or you're growing your own and selling them at a markup and if you want but that, that would re yeah, yeah, that would sorry. require getting the nursery license getting inspected by the state it's called running a successful business and if you want to run a successful business, the way to not do it is to spend more money than you earn. And so I just showed you right there. That, that is a huge secret to success right there. Every tree goes in at a profit, period. That's very interesting. And, and that would require the person to have knowledge about uh, nursery, about growing trees and planting seed and uh, scarification of seeds, etc. Not at all. You not at all. You buy all right. So go to whatever your favorite nursery is and look at their price per plant. What if you buy five hundred? What if you buy a thousand? The price goes down. You just do the math and say, oh, and this this is what I did with apples at first. That's when it dawned on me. Uh, I wanted a hundred apple trees. I looked at the price catalogs back then. You use paper and you read the catalog. And at, at that price, it was going to cost me, let's say, you know, $5 a plant. Well, if I got 500 of them, it would only cost me $4 a plant. So I went to an orchardist down the road. And I said, hey, Mike, you know, you want some plants? You want, you know, 400 apple, apple trees? You know, well, do they have these? I says, yeah. I says, okay, then I'll buy them. So he bought them. He was expecting to pay, you know, his, his uh, 100 rate because he was only getting 400. 
Well, I was able to get them a little bit better rate, but I can mark it up enough to pay for my trees. So I go to the catalog and I'm about to call the company. And then I noticed that if I, if I bought a thousand trees, it would only cost me an extra hundred bucks. So I bought a, a thousand trees. Mike paid for 500 of them. Now I got these, you know, 500 trees left over that only cost me like 10 cents a piece. Now I got to sell them. Well, I couldn't sell them all. So I planted them here. And so it required no knowledge of stratification processes of seeds, no knowledge about how to run a nursery bed and this and that and the other thing. I just bought stuff, broke it apart, resold it. Interesting. So then you, you need to, you know, have a good network and be able to be able to, to, to sell those off. But that's a, an interesting approach. Not when you start. When you start, you have nothing. Get over it. You start with you start with where you are and you build that over time. You develop the business. You create this business. And here's the easy way to do it is if we got all these different, let's say, you know, 50 hectare farms all over the place, you now buy this farm. Okay, now the nursery license is under your name. You go ahead and you do all this kind of stuff after you're fully planted five years from now, you pass it off to somebody else. And how many how many acres of open ground are there on this planet? Um, we can do this. It's not a Ponzi scheme at all. We can do this for you know, hundreds of years and never fill all the space that could use trees on this planet. We can revegetate, we can revegetate the entire planet in 15 years at a profit if we actually get off our asses and do it. So now let's go back to economics and say, okay, now let's look at the economics of chestnut, for example. And you kind of pencil it all out, 24-year return on your investment, blah, 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 blah. And it takes all these different inputs. Well, my inputs all go away. And then the initial planting stock is put in at a profit. So I have now have a nursery business is profitable. I have a cattle business is profitable. The, you know, the, the hogs are profitable and the trees are profitable in part because I don't do a darn thing to it. Oh, but your pests and diseases go through the roof. Yes, they do. But I'm now doing genetic selection to select against the ones that are susceptible. So now I have all this surplus wood that I've got to somehow get rid of. So I either, you know, make it into boards behind me, burn it in a wood stove to keep me warm in the wintertime or turn it into mushrooms that I can eat feed the pigs or sell the people it's like and you wonder why somebody just can't make it pencil out when they're trying to look at one crop and see that that one crop pays for absolutely everything and you need the tractor the sprayer the this tool that tool and all that kind of stuff that is the wrong way to do it like an ecosystem the value in your business is really the interactions the recycling Right, it's the sense that's what you were explaining earlier on. The fact that you can just um, you can make a chestnut, for example, thin it, and you can create mushrooms with it, or you can feed uh, an animal with it, and you do that on so many on interactions on so many different levels. This is what builds the resilience, and the low costs, and and therefore the high relative profitability. Of yeah, it's the whole system that that is the most significant. And there's a lot of people say, "Oh, show me somebody who's done your system." It's like, well, there really aren't very many people who've done the whole system. They'll go in and they'll cherry pick and then they'll look, oh, chestnut, look, you know, and they go get, you know, fixated on chestnuts and then they go extra heavy on chestnuts. Well, then they don't get all of the synergistic benefits of managing a system because they don't have a system or they do raspberries because your turnaround is like in three years, you're massively profitable in three years, but you're, you're a chemical or at least an organic spray oriented raspberry business. 
Why do you think that's the case that there's not many people that have applied the whole system uh, as one? Well, what's your what's your um, opinion on that? My my current working opinion, which is subject to change once new information comes along, is I think that what it is, and you've already demonstrated this several times, is you don't believe it. That can't be possible. Can't be true. No way. And then you look at my place, and it, it looks to most people would look like a mess. There's no way that that thing can pay its bills. It's like yeah. It can. Nature works. It has always worked. And all we have to do is figure out how to interact with it the way it works. And then we just extract the actual actual yield from it, the ecologically produced surplus. And um, <coughs> I'm going to cough a bit. Let's just use uh, in, the, in the U.S., eastern U.S., um, white pine is a pretty uh, common standard tree species. And if you're doing a reforestation project, I'm going to buy a piece of real estate, plant a white pine plantation and harvest it in 50 years. I'll make an approximate um, 7% return on my investment without doing anything. So we've got numbers for certain specific things that are useful and valuable numbers, but it's way more than that, way better than that when we run a whole system. But the only thing is we have to interact with it. And I, I guess, as you said, like when you said, like, you know, I've, I've expressed a few times um, in the sense, not this belief at all, because I do believe and I do trust uh, the things that you're saying, but I guess that it's, it, it, sh it requires quite a, a different take on how to farm and very different to what we see, what we learn and what we study, what we do. And so it does require quite a big change in, in mentality and an approach and also a somehow faith. Because, I mean, you see what I mean? If you're planting all these chestnuts, for example, and you're thinking, wow, but what if an, a, a, something comes along and just decimates them? And then, you know, can I really, will I really manage to select the right ones? I mean, there's lots of questions there and, and doubts. And, and that's why uh, most people don't believe it. They say it's not, they just, they just get to the end of, all of their thinking, the way that they were trained to think. And it's like, I don't believe it. Can't, it can't work. Can't work. And then, and then the whole, our, our industry is set up this way. Uh, our universities is set up this way to get you thinking in nice little monocrop pigeonholes that this is the only way to do it. There's actually, I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to. One of the local universities has done, and as a nonprofit, who's also done it, um, this analysis on how to grow hazelnuts and they've proven over and over and over again that if you're growing hazelnuts in the upper midwest it's not profitable they conclude because we don't have the cultivars that will give us the yields that will make it profitable they're looking for a cultivar or several cultivars of one species that will then produce so many nuts that it will pay for all the expenses that you need to do and they they have it outlined you need this equipment this spray this fertilizer this weed control that kind of stuff i'm going to go through using their data say okay here's your data this is why you say it's not profitable i'll show you that what you're doing and how you're doing it is the wrong way to grow that crop profitably if you want to grow that crop profitable profitably that's not the way to do it and so there, I just dared myself in public to write that article. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. That's very good. Um, one of the, it seems like one of the keys to, to a successful start 
is to find the right genetics, right? So I guess like, tell me a bit about the importance in, in this, in the logic of restoration agriculture and the system that you've described to us of, you know, bringing into your farm and doing the research of finding the right genetics that are, you know, nowadays we have cultivars of, I'm more familiar with Mediterranean climate, but we have cultivars of almonds that have been really pushed to, to, and, and bred within a system of high intensive inputs. And so if I take some of these cultivars, it may not necessarily be making, giving my, doing myself a favor and I may be setting myself back as compared to if I was to find the rustic cultivars. So, you know, tell me, how, how, do you, how would you advise people on that? The point? mass selection process it has a very specific protocol and you do all the research that you can to find all the, the characteristics in that almond that you're looking for. Uh, don't disregard the modern varieties because they have serious hardcore genetics that are really, really useful. They've just been bred in a context that isn't nature. Well, mass selection starts with grabbing genetics from all over the place. You bring it together and then you go ahead and you plant them together. Well, then what I've done and what, what uh, natural planting would do if you're just going out and reforesting something is you just put them in there and you ignore them. That's what the strategic total utter neglect, stun, that's what that means. Get them established for a year or two and then ignore them. And if they die, you're not interested. But if you're going, like, say, three years, I bet you if you planted 250 different almond varieties, you're going to have a handful that flower next year. And those are the ones that you now focus on. You get those cross-pollinated and you start your own um, breeding program. So that we, we don't know the ideal genetics. Go to somebody who has already been doing mass selection breeding, like the Forest Agriculture um, Nursery, and you know that they have been mass selected breeding. They're, they're, they have cultivars, but, it, but that's not the point. It's the population that matters, not the individual. And so go to somebody who's already doing mass selection breeding, start there, and then bring in everything else from everywhere else. Uh, there's actually two of my apple varieties are more modern apple varieties that were bred at Purdue with one pollen grain and one flower and bagged and you pray for 10 years and look at it. And that's Priscilla and uh, Liberty. Those are incredible apple trees. Hardly anything bothers them. The other things, the other ones are ones that I've discovered. Some are heritage, some are modern, and four of them are varieties that, that I selected myself from my own seedlings. So if I were close to you, if I were, let's say, I don't know, let's say 50 miles from your place, should, could I just rely on your genetics? Could I just say, oh, I'm just going to, he's already selected them, so I'm just going to use Mark's genetics. Or should I go through the process of, of, again, of getting a wide variety? Because this is also, I mean, some people can be a bit overwhelmed and by, that, by the, you know, the amount of work that that would entail and, and the amount of, you know, again, finding all these things and knowing where to look and et cetera, this can be something quite challenging for somebody. So, you know, could we just rely on you? So what you just, the way you just asked that question, that's a classic landowner. And that's the reason why most of the people that I've worked with don't have a complete system planted because they're like, yeah, but I'm not going to do the whole thing. So you go do part of the thing. Well, nature itself as a whole complete system requires nothing from us whatsoever. Once you start to make decisions and I'm not going to do the whole system, you will now have inputs, which is fine. There's, there's actually a, a organic apple grower up the road who started with this organic orchard, orchard style and, you know, poo pooed my work for years and years and years until he finally said, well, hang on a second. 
you, you're on to something. So he started experimenting with polycultures, and now it's a certified organic polyculture, you know, beautiful, wild place. He's got extra enterprises that have started on the farm, and he has a, a regular spray regimen. And so there's going to be all these different halfway betweens this and that. So would would I recommend you rely entirely on forest ag for your genetics? Um, for the genetics, no. For the plants, yes, because if you order plants from us, we'll give you a deal on that, and we'll source the other plants for you. You just say what you want because we buy you know bulk wholesale from other nurseries, and we'll split them up and send them your way. So, yeah. Come to forestag.com, order your trees, except we can't ship to Europe. Um, so we have actually so many listeners from the US. Right. So many people will be actually pretty close to you and that would be relevant. Um, but I'm going to take, I'm going to do that idea that you said and, and do that genetic work. There you go. I think that with almonds, because I, I, I love almonds and I think that would be really, really interesting. Uh, you, you mentioned now something that I wanted to talk about, and that is um, the, the, let's say the, the compromises between a full system, but still using a polyculture. And so, you know, maybe we could, you already explained that, you know, you would probably have more inputs. Maybe we can just break that down a bit more. If we have somebody coming here and says, yeah, but, okay, that's all great, but I only want to use three species. He'll still do, he or she, sorry, will still do, um, you know, the whole work of sourcing lots of genetics and, and from, from many different places and putting them together and, and thinning, etc. He still follows, he or she still follows that process, but um, that's, it's only three species. What can we expect from that? What kind of performance could we expect from a, a more simplified system like this? That it'll, that'll do better over time as that selection process continues. You know, that, that's what you're doing is you're selecting for the, for the ones that are doing well on your property and you will continue to improve the yields from that system. The fact that there's only, let's say, two or three species doesn't really matter because you've mentioned you have 15 species there. Um, well, I won't say, yeah, I won't say it doesn't matter. I'm just saying that once you start doing that breeding work within within those particular three species, that system's going to do better through time. Will it have all of the things involved with it to help it to do everything? We don't know. One of the things also that does matter is scale. Um, and we'll use it like for, for pest control, for example. Um, and, and it matters for breeding. If I have uh, cucumbers, for example, I'm growing cucumbers. If uh, I've got cucumber beetles that come into my population, this is what happened with me. At about year three or year four, finally cucumber beetles started to be really, really, really an economic hassle. And I'm not going to spray. I'm not going to spray. Uh, and then it was like year four to five, all of a sudden their populations dropped way, 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 way down. So think about a pest population. If you're planting only cucumbers, the cucumber beetles, squash beetles are going to just do this. Well, if you spray, they're back here again, and then they're going to do this, and then you spray, whether you're using a chemical or organic. Well, if you do this, now all of a sudden, you're up here, way more cucumber beetles. Now you have enough food to support the critters that eat them, and you have enough conditions that are such that they're overpopulated, and they get diseases, and then they fall away. You won't get into the control phase until you go through the catastrophic loss phase. That's simple population um, dynamics, and there's math for just about everything. So if you do that in a, a suburban lot, you've got a 20-foot diameter patch of cucumbers, um, you'll never be able to break through into that that level where you have enough to feed the diseases and the other things that come to eat it. What you've created is a refuge for all these pests to come to because you're not spraying anything. 
there needs to be a certain scale for uh, ecological processes to to really kick in and they're different from a fruit fly to a redwood there's different time scales involved with that well also with also with genetics there's a couple of different seed companies in the u.s that have networked growers that are growing vegetable seed and you're growing it here and there and here and there. And they work with small growers and they pride themselves on the fact that they're working with small growers. Well, acorn squash is a crop that I'm really familiar with, you know, grew it for 25 years commercially. And in order to get all of the genes to express in acorn squash, you need approximately 40 acres of acorn squash to get all those genes to express. Then you go through and you select the ones that are, the the type that you want and then they also get many of these off types because that's a critical part of that whole uh gene pool and then they bring that back in and so if you have a, a five acre plot and you're saving your seed for acorn squash for example and then this person over here grew the same variety let's use table ace was my favorite variety you're growing table ace on five acres and 20 other growers are growing table ace on five acres 10 years down the line your table ace looks different than mine how is that possible? Because we didn't have enough in one area to express all of those genes and we lost traits. Very interesting. What you're saying, it, it kind of reminds me the importance for anybody that's going to go into this system to have studied ecology. Like having, an, not studied, I'm not saying necessarily at university, I'm just saying like to have an understanding of ecology because you're, you're, you're basically really working with ecological patterns and and, and ecological knowledge instead of knowledge of how to spray, how to fertilize, which is, you know, the, the I mean, <laughs> I've got so many books up there about how to fertilize. I've got some about ecology, don't worry, and I've got your book there as well. And uh, they're always inspiring. But, you know, it's, it seems like the basis of the knowledge that, that, that one would need to get involved with this kind of agricultural approach. A basic ecological understanding, if you're to do it and steer it successfully, is important. And one way to get it is to go to restoringagriculture.com and sign up for my beta course. It was a series of, you know, like 80 or so webinars that I did. Um, and what it is, it's, it's a uh, college-level ecology curriculum cherry-picked to pick the things that a farmer would need to know and want to know. Everything from, you know, how to get started to um, genetic selection to managing succession through time. Um, there's special, you know, things in there and how I've done asparagus and, uh, you know, how to, how to mulch 40 acres all at once, you know, these restoring agriculture.com. Restoring agriculture.com. Perfect. We're going to put that in the, in the notes below for people to have easy access to, um, that's interesting. And I, I wanted to just pull that logic of the polyculture one step further, you know, Imagine I'm I'm very interested in walnuts and I'm going to follow your approach in terms of the breeding and in terms of planting densely, selecting and thinning, but I just want walnuts. Is that something that, you know, what's what's the value in that? What what would you say what what do you expect would happen if I just had an alley cropping system with, you know, my grains in between or my animals, maybe it would be a silver pastoral system and I would just go full full on with walnuts and walnut selection. Um is that is that worth it? Your walnuts will be different than somebody else's walnuts because you're putting them in a very specific set of conditions to which the the gene pool adapts and it changes through time. Um, actually, what it is interesting is there are certain species that actually form pure stands in nature. Beech is one of them. Beech will go in and it'll exclude almost everything else. It's used to pure stands. 
hazelnuts, another one, uh, <laughs> at least here in North America, it'll form thickets that carpet the ground for miles in certain places. And so there are some species that are actually, it's, it's uh, more appropriate to have those in more reduced systems. Sugarcane, believe it or not, is another one. Sugarcane is like this uh, grass with rhizomes that takes over your lawn. And so walnuts is one of these kind of 50-50 because it has the juggalones in the roots. It excludes a lot of species. So it is a less biodiverse system to begin with. So it's not as bad uh, doing just straight walnuts. I was actually walking through my um, uh, butternut and my heartnut planting today. And I was kind of thinking the same thought. It's like, is this diverse enough? Or can I go ahead and remove these things and make it less diverse? And, you know, do I have the answers to that? No. But you know how I learn those answers? I go do something and I accept feedback. And, and, if, it, and if it knocks things back, it's like, well, and I'll re-increase the diversity. So once you've got the system up and running, there's not one individual plant that I'm depending on for my income. It's the whole system that works. So if one all of a sudden drops way down because I screwed up, um, something else will compensate or I can shift an emphasis to something I don't do anymore, like cut flowers. I don't harvest and sell cut flowers anymore because I don't have to. Did the flowers go away? No, they're all over the place. I'm looking at like two or three acres of them. They're beautiful. So I can go back to doing something that I used to do. Um, I've got I've got the ability to adapt and adjust just wired into the system. A common scenario is a farmer that um, currently has a system set up, uh, maybe an orchard set up. And um, let's imagine a case of, of a walnut orchard planted eight by eight or nine by nine. And um, is looking to start to incorporate uh, alternative methods because this farmer is noticing that there's some issues with the current system. Um, how or have you had any cases, or how would you advise a farmer going through a transition towards um, um, the type of agriculture that you've been that we've been talking about now, restoration agriculture? Would you advise to diversify that orchard? cut everything, start again? How do we go about a, a transition? So, you know, and that's actually most of the work that I do as restoration agriculture development is helping farmers to transition from where they are now to where they you know, want to go with it. And it, it ends up being fairly custom designed per operator. And it depends on a lot of things that we don't even have time to get into. But if it's walnut, uh, first thing to know is, well, what what's the plant community type? Uh, what are the different species that like to be with walnuts and uh, just offhand all your prunuses your cherries and plums raspberries and grapes actually how I got started doing my walnuts this way is I was at you know this um, like whatever it's tri-state forestry workshop is what it was and I went to this one workshop on how to get rid of raspberries in your walnuts another workshop how to get rid of grapes in your walnuts another one how to how to get rid of wild cherry in your walnuts how to get rid of elderberries in your walnuts so well if if you have a certain way of managing your system if you got rows or are you treating them like individual trees if they're like individual trees you can plant right at the base of the tree with something that's adapted to that plant community type and it'll do okay and what do you have invested in it say you've got a a hundred walnut trees maybe i'm going to get 200 plants that means i'll buy 500 plants and sell 300 of them these plants go in at a profit i put them in the ground i don't have anything to lose they're going to grow with walnut some will do better than others, and I start my genetic selection from there. But but cherry cherries and grapes, you know, any prunus, cherries, grapes, um, uh, elderberries, raspberries, 
currants, gooseberries um, will all do well with walnut. Planting them online so you could continue to harvest mechanically. Either, either in the row, around the base of the tree, whatever fits into your system, around the edges. Mm-hmm. People have center pivot irrigation doing the corners. You know, just It's going to be custom designed to what your operation is like. Of course. Very interesting. And there's, there's something else that I was, as we were talking about genetics and about looking at the past and, you know, plant communities that have been there for, for you suggested 94, was it th- a million that you were saying those communities have the been oak, The oaks here in North America, they say 95 million years, yeah. 95 million, okay. And so now we're seeing a situation of rapid climate change. And how do we apply this logic of, you know, biomimicking, but taking into account an, a, a climate that's going to be, that's changing and that's providing new disturbance uh, regimes. So how do we, how do we adapt to that? And how do we, you know, model this system around the big issue of climate our, change? Our first step, of course, is to go right into the active, live, on-site breeding of all of the different perennial species that got on the farm. That's first and foremost. Well, then another one is to look at analogs of systems that this might be projected to be this farm right here we didn't have all this climate research out there but i decided to plan for it anyways on the northeastern part of the the property i've got a number of different um, arctic and high elevation species and on the southwestern side of it i have all kinds of you know american desert southwest species that are there and so as things shift and change through time i've got genetic experiments that are ongoing with those particular um, plants. And the one of the things that, you know, I keep looking at is, is when I get concerned about drought, I just look at you guys in the Mediterranean. It's like, how the heck have these trees survived as long as they have in the Mediterranean? Then as soon as I get scared that, oh my gosh, the Mediterranean is going to run into trouble. Well, then you go to just, wow, how about like, you know, monsoon season type African species, it's like you're just going to have to do some assisted migration ahead of time. And what happens when you do the assisted migration ahead of time, you're going to have higher losses because the plants aren't adapted to now. They might be adapted to 20 years from now, 30 years from now, but start the process right now. And this this is the process that um, I've started on. And believe it or not, here I am in a part of North America where we regularly get to minus 40. Minus 40 is the same whether it's Fahrenheit or Celsius. My two, my two favorite breeding projects right now, coffee and chocolate. You, you, you've planted those on your farm. <laughs> I have planted them in areas where I'm rapidly accelerating the selection process to get them to be more cold hardy. And am I doing it with one pollen grain and one flower? No, it's mass selection. Mass selection. You're planting seeds or you're, you're planting seeds, I guess, Correct. right? Yeah. Seeds and seedlings. Phenomenal. And- I mean, this conversation has been so based around breeding and planting and selection, but I, I guess that's like the the main knowledge necessary to to make this work is is around this, right? It's around it's ecology, of course. We've discussed that, but it's around breeding. And and here you go back to the simplified view of reality, whereas there's got to be one pillar. There's a pillar. There's a central pillar. Nature is a system of cyclical interacting cycles. There is no one thing that's going to make it work if there is one thing that's going to make it work is water and we haven't even touched on water if you aren't managing the water that comes out of the sky and lands on your property that's the fundamental thing because that's the one thing that we know that plants on planet earth can't live without water um 
So there is no one central pillar. There isn't. Breeding is very important. I have to take that back, but I'm basically when I when I think about this, I'm, I don't think about one pillar holding on to everything. I'm just thinking about the difference between the conventional approach and and the approach that you are you are you are demonstrating in your farm and and the breeding work is is one of the fundamentals where as a, as a, as a, as a more, as a conventional farmer you export that to universities and you export that to somebody else but you are actually practicing that so that's the way I would I would rephrase it and I would I would say it I'm not saying that it's there's obviously this conversation has demonstrated the ability to 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 use the complexity of nature to create resilience in different ways and i hope that listeners have understood that correctly and i'm sure um, that they have and, and like i said with the genetic selection it's it's as difficult that a four-year-old can figure it out it's just what how human beings have interacted with their plants since the dawn of time you know the time has come that we have to stop exporting uh, our knowledge and our skill and our expertise as farmers and giving that power to experts. It, it's not theirs. They have no idea. Their math, and, and this is what drives me nuts what about a lot of these people doing all these equations. Look, see, the math works right. And as long as you go ahead and say, oh, yeah, the math works right. See, we're right. And we have PhDs and you don't. It's like, yeah, but you know what? Your math is so incredibly accurate. You're exactly right. And you have no fucking idea what you're doing. You have no idea how to grow this plant, to live with this plant, to manage this ecosystem through time. You're too busy doing math. I'm not saying that that's, that's wrong or, or, or we shouldn't do it. It's that that is not the answer. Nature is a, is a compounded system of systems within systems. And it is a, there are so many variables involved that you won't be able to do the math that's so complex. Yet a four-year-old, can do the genetic work of all these universities and researches just by picking the fruit that he wants to eat or she wants to eat or they want to eat. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I really would like to encourage everybody to get out here and do their best to make a real ecological change in the world for real. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. 